I preached my first sermon on a Sunday evening when I was 16 years old. I do not recommend that approach uh, to training guys for ministry is to start them out that young or in that way. And whether or not that was a wise move on the part of the congregation that I was a part of is one conversation to have. But I will say it was a sign of a very significant transformation in my own life. Because two years prior, at age 14, my parents had just committed themselves to following Christ, and we changed from a sleepy liberal congregation to a vibrant Bible-saturated church, and I wanted nothing, nothing to do with it. I refused, over the next number of weeks and months, I refused to get up on time on Sunday because I was going to do everything I could to make our family late to this church that I didn't want to go to. I complained as much as I could and even refused at one point to get into the car until my dad said in a very clear voice and with some moves that made me think he meant this, he was going to use sanctified force to put me in the car. I'm pretty bullheaded, so I thought, fine, I'll acquiesce to to that, but I'm not getting out of the car because he won't do anything in front of all these people at church. I was wrong, (laughs) and so I got out of the car, and I remember going into this church, and of course, my parents were so zealous, they would go to Sunday school also, which just disturbed me to no end that we had to spend almost all morning long at this church. And it was, of all places, a Baptist church. I know. That's exactly what I said. I couldn't stand it. So I go into the Sunday school class, and it's a large group. This is a very large church and was growing very rapidly. And so I I go into the youth group, and it was really just the junior high group, and they would have to split that group off into smaller groups, and I didn't know anybody, I didn't want to be there, I didn't want to get to know anybody. And I was doing my best, introverted, don't ask me a question, leave me alone, I hate being here, I don't like you impersonation. The best I could, especially when we got down into the smaller group, And then the leader of our little small Sunday school group, like on the very first Sunday I'm there, looks at me and says, Brett, it's so wonderful to have you here. Would you just read for us these verses in this chapter of the Bible? I could feel the red. Can you feel red when it's glowing in your face? I could feel it. I was angry. I was scared. I did not like doing anything in public, especially at a church I hate being at. And I remember this was the first time I'd ever experienced tunnel vision. The words on the page started to get blurry. I started to see the edges close in and I thought I'm going to pass out right here on the spot. Two years later, I'm preaching my first sermon. It was the Lord's work. A year after that terrible experience, after hearing a pastor faithfully open the Bible week after week after week, powerfully preach the gospel, seeing the transformation of the gospel in our family, I was arrested by the word, I was convicted of my sin, I was absolutely broken over myself, And I surrendered myself to follow Christ. And then the Lord moved us to another little church where my dad became a pastor. I remember him asking me, what do you think about your dad becoming a pastor? I said, I hate that idea. I was a Christian at that point, but I thought, all right, is not being a Christian enough? Does my dad have to be a pastor also? Because I know there's another set of eyes that come with that on the pastor's kids. And so... He became a pastor. Again, I felt the conviction of the Lord as I'm reading the word, I'm hearing it preached. 
And then came this eventful Sunday evening when it's a youth-led service. They handed all, all the parts to all the other students and the only part that was left was preaching and the only kid left was me. And I'm like, you're going to ask me to what? I mean, two years ago, I'd, I would read a Bible passage and almost faint. You want me to preach? I mean, I'd tried to come up with every objection I could think of, of why I shouldn't be doing this. And 34 years later, still doing this. Can you think of your own story? Your own occasion of where you're wrestling with God and his calling on your life, not just of how you're going to come to him, but maybe even how you're going to serve him? And can you think of any of the litany of objections that you have raised to God of why you are insufficient in being able to serve the Lord as he wants you to serve or why the circumstances just make it too difficult, too hard, why your background is not the right one suited for what he's asking you to do? Do you have any of those objections? Do you have any of those fears that you've brought before the Lord? What are those regular objections that you raise when you're on the path of serving God and you don't like the road he has you on? Have you ever thought about the objections we raise when we, you know, one of the elders comes to you or or someone in the church comes up and says, hey, would you pray about serving in this way? Have you ever noticed that all the objections we typically have are very focused on who we are or what we aren't or what we don't have or what we can't give? They're very self-focused, aren't they? And when we finally come to the place where we're going to trust God and actually serve him the way he wants us to do, all the answers to what we saw as our insufficiencies are not self-focused answers, they're God-focused ones. And they highlight his own sufficiency. Which is just like what we see in Exodus 4. That's what we see here. Now recall some time ago when we were studying this book long ago. Like back in June. The first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus is really all about the sufficiency of God. It highlights who God is for his people. The latter part of the book from chapter 19 to 40, that is all a record of how do you relate to this God. But before you relate to him in any practical ways, he wants to reveal this is who he is. This is who he is for his people so that you can trust him, so that you will follow him fully. In chapter 1, we saw that Israel was in Egypt after Joseph. It was God showing that he is the one who is always present with his people. He's never absent, even when it feels like he's absent and you can't quite see it and the circumstances seem disastrous. It's not that God is absent. He's always present with his people. In chapters 2 through 4... We're seeing Moses' background. We're seeing the calling of Moses while he's in Egypt, then when he's in Midian. It's the calling of Moses to service, and it is God showing his people that he is the one who is always, from the beginning, in your background, before you were born, when you were born, all through, he is the one preparing his people to serve him. He's preparing you, and he's very purposeful in how he's preparing you to serve. Here we are in Exodus 4. Just on the heels of God approaching him in that burning bush. You remember Moses just doing his thing, shepherding the sheep. Except he's shepherding the sheep really close to the border of Egypt. And no real reason why he would do that. And there are some hints in the text that it could be that Moses might be wondering what God is up to. And he's going as close as he can to the border of Egypt where God's people are in shepherding the sheep. Then he sees a bush burning and it's not consumed and then it speaks and he says, ah, I should look at this. And then God begins to speak. Now what's interesting in chapter three, Moses doesn't say very much. 
He doesn't say much at all. He has a couple of questions. So if you want me to go to this people and they ask me like, what's the code word? What's the code word as to who it is that sent you? What should I say? That's what he asks in verse 13 of chapter 3. And then in verse 14 to the end of chapter 3, it's all God speaking. And he's giving him the answer. You will tell them that the eternal God who made promises to your forefathers is now bringing all of those promises to fulfillment, just as I said I would do. I told Abraham 400 years after you are been, your people have been in Egypt, I'm going to release them. That's one of the reasons I think Moses might have had some idea that God was up to something. He knew the promises. Now chapter 4 is a little different because Moses is probably saying too much. And he's talking a whole lot in this chapter. And he has one objection after the other as to why he is simply not sufficient to serve God in the way that God wants him to serve. And God counters every objection with a reminder of God's own sufficiency for Moses in his service. So it's not about you getting all your questions answered and you being the perfect person to be able to do all this. The issue is, do you recognize who I am, Moses? Do you trust me and what I will give you and I will provide for you and what I'll do for you? So Exodus 4 highlights ways in which God demonstrates how sufficient he is so that Moses could confidently serve him. Now, I think it's very likely that many of our objections to serving God may be different in detail from Moses, but not in category. And while God's answers to Moses' objections may be very different in detail from those that he might provide for us, his sufficiency for our serving him is not different. In fact, when you are confident and you see exactly how the Lord wants you to serve, where he wants you to serve. You can raise a host of objections if you'd like and the answers will never come down to making yourself feel sufficient. Because if you're sufficient in yourself, God isn't ultimately glorified, is he? If you do see how insufficient you are, but you begin to rest then in who God is, then God receives the glory and our service becomes quite effective. And that's what you see in this chapter. So how is it that God demonstrates his sufficiency so that we might confidently serve him in whatever capacity, wherever, however he desires us to serve? Three categories of God's sufficiency are highlighted in Exodus 4 so that his people might look at him and his sufficiency and serve him with confidence. So that's what we'll look at this morning, just three categories of God's sufficiency for our own service of him. And I want you, as we're going through this, to really just be mindful of this and think about it and any objections that perhaps resonate in your heart or reside in your heart of why you can't, why you shouldn't, why you're too busy, etc. Now listen, there are good reasons to say no. This is not one of those pressured sermons because I'm thinking about somebody in the room who said no to me recently. It's not that. So if you're one of those, and I don't know who you are, maybe I do, but... No, it's, it's not one of those. But we all have these hesitancies at times. We're all thinking things through. And I'm not suggesting you need to be considering a call to preach unless you should. I'm, I'm not saying that what, whenever someone asks you, just always say yes. There, there are some good reasons that you might need to say no, but you need to think about why you're saying No. You need to think what, about what these objections are really saying about where your heart is in front of God and what you're really relying upon when you serve him. So category one of God's sufficiency. First, we see that God's power is sufficient for our service. God's power. Why do I highlight his power? Because what is highlighted in the first nine verses are miraculous deeds that God does. 
miraculous powers, miraculous activities that he's going to ask Moses to do in front of the leaders of the people of Israel. And you're going to say, well, we see some of these come up later on. Well, yes, you will. You'll see some of them come up when he's in front of the Pharaoh. You'll see some of these come up when he's after the Exodus and, and there are still miraculous things that are done. You will see some of these things come up uh, as the plagues are delivered. But these displays of power are not for Egypt. These displays of power are for his people to see. These displays of miraculous power are in front of the people of Israel so that they would believe that God sent Moses as his divine representative, so that they would treat Moses as if he were the voice of God to them. Now, before we look at Moses' first objection here in this chapter, I I just want to remind you of what God had promised Moses in the prior chapter. As we alluded to, Moses, in verse 13 of chapter 3, he asked if the leaders of Israel wanted to, to know who sent him, who would, you, who would you suggest I say sent us? Well, look at verse 14. Just look at it for a moment. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Then look at verse 18. They will pay heed to what you say. And you, with the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And God doesn't stop. He goes on. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters and thus you will plunder the Egyptians. How's that for a rally speech before you go out to battle I mean, Moses should be saying, yes, this is in the bag. This is done. I mean, what more could you want to hear? That the eternal God who has always existed is fulfilling his promise to his people and he's going to plunder the most powerful nation on the earth and wipe out their army. And Moses says, well, What if they'll not believe me or listen to what I have to say? And they might say, the Lord has not really appeared to you. Now, wait a minute. Who was just speaking to you, Moses? What did he just promise you? What what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? Did you not hear what I said? should have been an easy answer but Moses says I they're not going to believe me God's already addressed this hasn't he 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 told them they will listen to you you don't have to worry about that they will Moses says yeah but they're going to doubt that I'm telling the truth how do I prove it to them in other words You're not answering, Lord, my every conceivable alternative to what could happen. So I'm not sure I can trust that you're going to protect me, that you're going to preserve me, you're going to keep me from having to be disappointed or humiliated or manipulated by others or even harmed by others. In fact, I can envision so many different ways in which this could turn out, Lord, and you have not answered all those ways. Are you that kind of person? Are you like that? 
you're thinking about all the conceivable things that could happen. And you're the kind of person that has to have answers to all of these issues before you'll ever take a first step, despite what the Lord has actually revealed in the Bible. You're the kind of person who says, okay, this is what the Lord wants, so we should probably pray about it. You say, are you suggesting prayer is not necessary? I'm saying when the Lord has spoken, you may pray, but you better do, right? Yeah, so there's plenty of times we should pray, we should always be praying, but when he's been clear, when he's promised, when he's made it very open to you, what do you do? You obey. But what if? No, no, what if? The what ifs never end. Have you noticed that? They never end. And I don't know why, but the what ifs are never positive. Do you ever come up with a what if that you're thinking, what if it's really good? What if it's really great? What if it all works out and it's better than you said it would be, God? We never say that, do we? It's always the worst case scenario, and that's where Moses is going. You would think God, being so holy, would say, huh, we can find better than this. But the Lord says to him in verse 2, what is that in your hand? Remember, he's been shepherding the sheep. He's got the shepherd's staff with him that he's been shepherding the sheep with. This is the staff. What, what is that? He said, a staff. Verse 3. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. Now see, I don't understand why he's so eager to do this and so resistant to do what God just promised would happen. You got a staff? Throw it on the ground. Okay. Throws it on the ground. And it became a serpent. And Moses fled. I'm, I'm taking it he was not in favor of snakes. Like some of you in the room, not in favor of snakes. And then the Lord said, stretch, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. Well, if he's scared, why would he then be confident to do this? There's no consistency with Moses. Don't look for it. So he stretched out his hand, he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That'd do it for me. I think. Maybe. Why is God doing that miracle? Why did he do that? We're told why in verse number five. Why? That they, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, the leaders of Israel, that they may believe that Yahweh, the eternal God, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. I've answered your objection. You're going to take your rod and throw it into the ground to become a snake and chase them. You're going to reach down and grab it by the tail and pick it up and it's going to become your staff again. That ought to do it. I'm the God who can make anything happen. I can create at just a word. And before Moses can throw up another objection, God gives him a second miracle to perform. In verse 6, the Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. Put it into your lap basically. So he put his hand into his bosom and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow, meaning that his hand had been devoid of all of the nerves to the point where he would likely have, it's at the end of the process of leprosy where it destroys the nerves and you so rub your, your extremities against things and you can't feel it. So it begins to rub them raw and they become infected and That's what his hand looked like when he pulled it out instantaneously from his lap. And he said, put it back into your bosom again. He put his hand back into his bosom again. And when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So God has power to create anything in an instantaneous way. And he has power over your own physical being, either to heal or to poison So if they see that, don't you think they would believe God has sent you? Well, there was just one more. It's as if God was doing the Steve Jobs. One more thing. Verse 9, 
But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So I'm going to show you that God has power over all the natural world as well. I can create, I can heal the physical world. I I have power over everything. In fact, all of the point of this is so that they would believe. The word believe is used in verse 1, verse 5, verse 8, verse 9. And did it actually accomplish that? Look at verse 31 of chapter 4. So the people, what? They believed. They believed. They saw the signs and they believed that Moses was from God and they believed that God was paying attention to them. At least on that day. At least at that point, they believed. So how many miraculous signs would be needed to convince the people that Moses was God's messenger? Well, these worked. And you, you look at that and you say, ah, man, if we, if we had that today. If we only had such miraculous signs and wonders being regularly performed in front of our world today, wouldn't it produce greater confidence in us and cause the world to believe? Wouldn't it do that? Well, maybe. Maybe initially, but not ultimately. Not ultimately. I mean, think about this. They believe now, but when they're just hours removed from the plagues and just hours removed from walking through a massive river on dry ground with walls of water on each side of them successfully and then turning around and seeing those walls of water collapse on the entire Egyptian army, wiping them out, they are complaining to such a degree that they want to kill Moses and go back to Egypt and eat onions all day and be slaves again. So tell me, How powerful were the miracles for their confidence? Does it sound familiar? Why did Jesus do miracles? I mean, you want to talk about a wonder worker. He puts Moses to shame. There's nobody who did miracles like Jesus did. Why did he do them? Well, he did them to show everyone that he was God in human flesh. He had power over the spiritual world. He could command demons. He had power over the natural world. He could say to a raging sea, be still, and it was. He, he, could, he could say to anyone who had a lifelong deformity, be healed, and it happened immediately. He could turn water into wine, couldn't he? John's gospel if you were to look at John's gospel carefully, we reviewed the whole thing back around Christmas time. John's gospel is even arranged around seven particular signs that show Jesus to be the Son of God. And at the end of his gospel, he makes this statement. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in, in this book, but these, these have been written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So didn't John say, if you see the signs, the miraculous signs, they're there so that you would believe? Well, then why did they kill Jesus? Why did they kill him? Why did Peter, who did miracles, deny Jesus, curse Jesus, and say, I've never known him? Signs... Do not create faith. Signs may confirm faith. They confirm belief that God has wrought in the human heart, but they do not create it. Do you remember the rich man and Lazarus and the account that Jesus gives of that in Luke chapter 19 where the rich man had all of his glory in his lifetime? Lazarus, the poor man, ate the crumbs from the rich man's table. Or even from the dregs that the dogs didn't eat. And they both die and Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham in glory, in paradise. 
And the rich man is in hell and in torment. And do you remember the request that the rich man had? If you just send Lazarus back from the dead, raise him from the dead and send him to my relatives, then they will believe and not experience what I'm going through. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And you say, really? I mean, if I saw a person who was dead, I attended their funeral and I visited their grave and then they were at church on Sunday, I'd trust God. You don't know that you would. Because there were likely thousands of people who saw Jesus. And hundreds who knew that he had died on the cross. And an entire city that realized that he had been buried for days. He was seen by over 500 people at one time. And still the world doesn't believe. Jesus said, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign and no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? The resurrection. Paul reminded the sign-loving Corinthians. 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. Indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called. Did you hear that? There are people seeking signs, and if they find the sign, they say they'll believe. Well, Jesus was doing sign after sign after sign after sign. The Pharisees come and say, do us a sign, and we'll believe. No, you won't believe, because there's something else going on inside of you. Really, at the core, you don't want to believe. That's why you keep asking for a sign, prove it. I think we better be careful about using the show me state criteria with God, don't you? Signs don't create faith. They're not necessary in order to have true faith. And by the way, we've been given all the signs we could ever want or that we could ever need. I mean, what more do you need to see in order to believe that God's power is completely sufficient for you to serve him precisely as he desires you to serve him? I mean, the one who created the universe from nothing by a single word who controls every atom in the universe at every moment in time in complete perfection so that the world looks like what we say is clockwork and we rely on it. And he's the one who raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heaven. God has nothing more to prove to you or to me of his power. He has done enough. And if you notice, Moses' objection back in Exodus 4 is not really about his personal inability. It's more about the lack of faith in others. At least at this point. What if they don't believe me? And sometimes that's the reaction. They're not going to follow. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to trust that I'm really from you. It's really these people. God has shown the world who he is in his power. In fact, the reason why you're here today, if you're a believer, and the reason why you believe is not because you saw all these dramatic signs. Maybe, maybe the Lord used some really powerful and wonderful things in your life to clarify in you the truth of the scripture, but you're here because God, and you believe because God opened your heart to the word and you said, I trust that. And he might have used some really important things around you to confirm that, but it wasn't the trappings that moved you to believe. And it won't move anybody else. God has shown the world who he is in his power. 
There's nothing more that he has to say. And if they don't believe you and they won't follow you and they won't be affected by the ministry that God has called you to serve him in, it isn't because of a lack of God's demonstration of his power. His power is sufficient for any act of any service that God calls us to. There's a second category that we see of God's sufficiency highlighted here in this chapter so that we might confidently serve God. Second, God's presence is sufficient for our service. God's presence. I want you to notice in verses 10 to 12, Moses turns the argument from they won't believe to I am insufficient. It's not them now, it's me. Okay, so they'll believe. I'm gonna be the problem, Lord. I'm the issue. I'm, I'm not really cut out for this. Verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord. Notice, Lord is in lower Letters, so it's not the divine name. He's just trying to respectfully disagree again. Please, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. And that literally reads in the Hebrew, not yesterday, not today, not yesterday. I've never, I've never been eloquent. Nor since you've spoken to your servant. I mean, nothing's changed now. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. There's a lot of debate that exists about what precisely is going on here with Moses and what he's complaining about. Does he have some kind of physical limitation, maybe a speech impediment, a stutter maybe that he has in front of a large audience, something like King George VI of Great Britain when he was thrust into the throne, when his brother Edward VIII abdicated the throne to go marry the American mistress, if you've heard the story. And King George VI comes to the throne and World War II breaks out and now he has to speak to the nation and give clarity and power and stability in his speech and he has a terrible stuttering problem. And he has to go through painful lessons about how to control that. It's very difficult, but he makes that through and leads the nation. Maybe this is like Moses. I stutter when I stand in front of people. I just get ripped with fear. Or maybe it was something else. One commentator said, many Jewish traditions suggest that it is a speech defect. For example, there's a midrash which is a a, a writing or a commentary from a rabbi that says that as a child, Moses accidentally burned his mouth with a live coal. Or one rabbi, a medieval Jewish exegete, said of Moses, he was born that way with a heavy mouth and he could pronounce the sounds of the language only partly and with difficulty. Maybe, nobody really knows. We don't know. Doesn't seem like Moses has any trouble arguing with God. (laughs) Stephen actually says of him in Acts 7.22 that he was a man powerful in speech and in action. So I tend to think that this could be an objection to the fact that he doesn't have any formal training in speaking. It could be it. He, he doesn't know how to, to stand in front of a crowd and, and deliver something very clearly. And the word eloquent that's used here in the New American Standard literally means I'm not a man of words. Not a man of words. When he says he's slow of speech, he says literally, I have a heavy tongue. I'm not quick on my feet. I'm not a quick thinker. I don't speak well on, in, on the fly. I get up in front of a crowd. I, I, I tend to, to really just bog down because I'm trying to think through everything that I should say. And I, I'm not good at this. I'm not trained in this. There are other people better than me at this. And look at God's response in verse 11. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Do you see what he did? Moses says, I'm insufficient. And God says, who do you think I am? Why do you make it about you? Who who am I? 
Who is it, Moses, that made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? You say, please, Lord, please, mister. And I'm saying, do you not know I am the eternal God who has made everything? And if you can't speak, it's because I ordained it. And if you can speak, it's because I ordained it. Who do you think's in control here? Who do you think? I'm calling you to serve. Who do you think's going to give you the ability to do this? You? And so God is again merciful. And he says in verse 12, now then go. And I, and then he emphasizes it. Do you see it? I, even I. That's actually there in the Hebrew text to emphasize, I, Yahweh, even I myself will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. You don't have to worry about going and getting elocution lessons. You don't have to get special training. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to have any of that. I'm going to be with your mouth. I will tell you everything you are to say. In other words, I'm going to be with you the whole time. It's not about you, you're just a mouthpiece. I want you there so you can speak my words to these people. That's it. I'll be there the whole time. It's basically God saying, am I enough for you? Is my presence enough for you? Is my ability enough for your inability? Or do you think you need something more? And what would that say you believe about God? This could be similar to part of the Corinthian church problem where they appeared to be more enamored by one of their pastors, Apollos, who was very skilled in public speaking as opposed to the Apostle Paul who didn't have the same degree of skill or training that Apollos had. And Paul looks at this Corinthian church and he says to them, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, 1 Corinthians 2. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you, here's my resume, here's the resume I brought to you. I was with you in weakness, fear, much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. So I did not appear impressive to you on the outside. And why did he come to them that way? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men. I didn't want you to respond to me because I was an effective communicator. That is an issue today. How many people choose a church and they will say, he's a really good communicator. As if that really matters for the eternal state of your soul. Now it matters if we communicate truth or error, but it does not matter at the end of the day, is the guy who's standing up there the most exhilarating speaker we've ever heard because at the end of the day what he has to say determines heaven or hell for you that's pretty significant I'm not devaluing the helpfulness of formal education or being intentionally equipped and prepared for some area of ministry certainly I value those things but but I would say to anyone who is preparing to preach or teach and you know we're going to have after our our service today a, a preaching seminar to try to equip people on how to do this. But you don't trust your training. You trust God, right? You, You work hard, but you don't trust your work. You trust God. You, at the end of the day, what are you going to trust in? What do you think's most effective? If God wants you to speak to your family members about Christ, don't say, okay, let me call the pastor. I remember that happened to me once. I was off on a personal retreat trying to plan out a year's worth of sermons. I was doing some reading and planning, just got away from everything. This was years and years ago. And I thought I had pretty well hidden myself from everyone 
Not, not for long, just like a day. And I remember the phone in the hotel room I was in began to ring. And I thought, that should not ring. <laughs> and I picked it up and it was a church member on the phone. And they're saying, hey, listen, my dad, he is ready to come to faith in Jesus. I've been talking to him all day, but you need to come and lead him to Christ. And I'm thinking, you're putting me at the core of his salvation? And I said, how did you find me? I know that's not a very sensitive pastoral answer, concerned about someone's soul. And the person on the other end said, I drove around every hotel in the city till I found your car. And I said, you could have taken that time and just told him, repent and believe. No, but you're the one who has to do it. I don't have the ability to lead him to Christ. And I said, then what have you been, what have you've not done anything with the things I've taught you? So I left and I went and I, gave him the gospel and he believed and he's in heaven and I'm bitter about it. (laughs) I'm not. You can do this. You can tell someone. You don't have to go get an elder. You don't have to go grab somebody else. You can tell them. You can. If you know enough to be a Christian, you know enough to tell someone how to become a Christian. You can serve the Lord. You don't need to chop up all these answers of why you can't. As if you're saying, God's presence with me, what he has given me, and who I am as a believer is just not enough. What are you saying about God? He is sufficient. His power is sufficient. His presence is enough for you. Let's look at a third, final category. You say, wow, we are moving fast. Well, Hold on. (laughs) Third, God's provision is sufficient for our service. That's how I sum up verses 13 through 31. Now you might think that all the miracles would have been enough and even God saying, I'm going to be with you. Even I myself, the eternal God, I'm going to be with you. But look again at Moses in verse 13. He seems humble, doesn't he? He said, please, Lord. Again, please, Lord. Now send the message by whomever you will. What does he mean by that? Find someone else. That's what he means by that. I'm not the guy. Please, Lord, not me. Find someone else. I'm sure there's someone out there who's just aching to do this job. And the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. I I don't think that's where we want to drive God. It's to where he's burning and seething with anger against us. And did it really take this long for God to get angry? But even in his anger, look how kind and merciful and gracious God is. Is I, I mean, you're, you're wondering kind of at this point, why not, God? This guy's obstinate. He's persistent in his rebellion. He does not want to follow you. Why don't you find someone more pliable and helpful? Well, God is generally most glorified in human weakness, not human ability. Again, it's much like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to the Corinthians. Consider your own calling. There were not many wise among you, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before the Lord, right? God is going to choose people who can't so that God can show that he does. That's what he's doing. 
Now in this section, he really answers every objection that Moses could bring up. And he says, listen, whatever you need, I'm going to provide it. Well, what does he provide? God's going to provide the right people for service. You see it in verse, verses 13 through 17. In verse 14, as the anger of the Lord burns, God mercifully says, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? Now, this is really interesting. He highlights not just his brother Aaron, so he's a family member, but he highlights he's a Levite. This is where we get a sense that God is going to use Aaron and his tribe as a mediator between God and mankind. Is not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, meaning he might have some training in this. He has no trouble speaking in front of a crowd. And moreover, he is coming out to meet you. Evidently, what we learn later about God sending Aaron has already taken place and Aaron is on his way to find Moses. He's coming out to meet you and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. He can't wait to see you. You've been estranged for so long, for 40 years. Well, why is he coming? Verse 15, you're to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, there he goes again, I, even I will be with your mouth and his mouth and I will teach you what you are to do. It's almost as if God is saying, all right, I'm gonna bring Aaron to help you, Moses. And I'm gonna be with your mouth because you're not getting off the hook and his mouth. And I'll use you both. And it will be I, the Lord God who does this. In verse 16, this is really interesting. Moreover, he shall speak to you, to, for you, to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. He's going to play a mediator's role in between God and the people. God is going to show himself through Moses as if Moses is the man revealing the words of God, and Aaron's going to be like the mediator who stands between God and the people. It's going to be a perfect way to display to the sons of Israel what is to come eventually in the priesthood. In other words, God's got this all figured out. Verse 17, you'll take in your hand this staff. This staff is going to represent you as the man of God and you'll perform the signs. So God's going to provide for you, Moses. God didn't have to bring Aaron. He was merciful to do it. God doesn't have to use any one of us. He's merciful to use all of us together. He can use you and he'll bring people along to shore up your weaknesses with their strengths. And your strengths will likely shore up their weaknesses. That's how the body of Christ works, isn't it? Every part has the proper peace and God has assembled it all and gifted them just as he willed so that we serve him exactly the way he wants us to serve him. He provides the right people. Secondly, he provides the right confirmation for our service. Verse 18, Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, now I think what's going on here, I think Moses is still objecting. And I think he has a Laban-Jacob scenario in his mind. You remember Laban, Jacob's father-in-law? When Jacob says, it's time for me to go back home, go back to my people, Laban says, why don't you hang around a while? It's not time to go. I'd be happy if you served me for another seven years. I'll give you my other daughter, the one he really wanted to marry. And if you serve me another seven years, you can have and just delay, delay, delay. I think Moses, maybe in the back of his mind, is going to Jethro, not just because he's being kind. He's saying, hey, maybe I can't get out of this with my inability or the people's rejection. Maybe Jethro can be my escape. So he goes to Jethro. He says, please let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they're still alive. That isn't what God told him. He knows they're still alive, right? So this is not even totally true. Jethro, who is a priest of God in Midian, says, yeah, go. Oh, that is not the answer I think he was hoping for. Go in peace. Go, you have my blessing, you have my favor. I see this, I know this. I think he was a priest of God and he knew exactly what God was doing with Moses and he sees it's time to go. In other words, God put someone in Moses' life who said, I see it, you should go. There's confirmation there. God does that. He brings the right people around you at the right time to say, we see the gifts, we see the calling, we see what he's doing, you should go. 
It's the right people. It's the right confirmation. He also provides the right timing for our service. Verse 19, I don't know how long this was after the conversation with Jethro, but it says in verse 19, the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So I take it that there's some time period between this whole conversation with God at the burning bush, then going back, which would have been a long journey back to Midian to talk to Jethro. And sometime after talking to Jethro, God says, now's the time, go. All the people who were seeking your life are dead. It's the perfect time. I've set the scene. I've providentially arranged it in perfection for you to go now. And that's what God does. That's what he did with the Lord Jesus. Galatians says at the proper time, God sent his son. When the time was perfect and right, he sent his son. It's what he does with us in our own service. The time is right and you will then serve. God also provides the right information for our service. Verse 21. This is interesting. He, he basically tells him some of the same things he told him back in chapter 3. When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I've put in your power. And I'll harden his heart so that you'll not let the people go. Then you'll say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you've refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, I don't know how that would have encouraged Moses. You're going to go tell Pharaoh that God's going to kill your firstborn son. But at least what God is doing is telling him, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to say. I take this personally, God says, about this. You're going to relay that to Pharaoh. And here's exactly what's going to happen. Gives all the information that he needs. Now, he doesn't provide him every detail, does he? Where's all the plagues? Didn't tell him anything about all the plagues or which plagues they would be or how long it would take. Didn't even tell him, hey, guess what? The magicians in Egypt are going to be able to do the same thing you can do in the first few. Didn't tell him any of that. Just kind of the mountain peaks of what's going to happen, which is a lot like what God has done with us, isn't it? We've got this big book in front of us, and he's given us a whole lot of information about what's coming, how it's going to go, why people aren't going to listen to you at times, how to share the gospel, how to trust the Lord, what to believe so that you'll have eternal life, even how things are going to end up. We have all this information and we're always asking questions that God didn't give us information about. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, I know what it says in the Bible, but I want to know. Well, wait a minute. Why is what God has told us not enough? Well, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how this part and this part works. Well, has he told us? Can you not be trusting in what he has given and you're always interested in what God hasn't given? We're, we're human beings like that, prone to this kind of thing. But he's given us everything we need. There's not another piece of revelation necessary for God to give to any one of us for us to be able to serve God completely, adequately, sufficiently as he desires us to serve him. Also, God provides the right preparation for our service. That's how I sum up verses 24 through 26. These are really weird verses, to be honest. It came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Is this God's anger hangover from previous? No, no. Verse 25, then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And at that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What in the world is going on here? It's really difficult to know. And most people are speculating. So let's speculate. Let's try to figure out what God hasn't said. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) From what we know and what we see here, it is likely Zipporah, Moses' wife, she was raised in a Midianite priestly family. The Midianites did believe in circumcision, but there was a certain way they would likely circumcise. We're not going to go into the details. 
but it would be a way that showed that they were Midianites. So the children were likely circumcised in that way and not as Israelites. This was a sign, circumcision was a sign of what people you belonged to. And it's very likely that Moses had no objections to how his children were raised or circumcised, perhaps. And that's why the Lord says, in preparing you to go, you're not going to go with family members who don't bear the sign of the people you're about to lead. And he had just told, been told that God is going to kill the firstborn son of Pharaoh. And the next thing we see is that Moses' son, likely his firstborn, is about to be killed. I think that's the, the more likely idea. It's hard to follow the pronouns in the Hebrew of who is being spoken about. But I think Moses is not the one that God is after, but his son. And that's why Zipporah takes action. She basically abandons her Midianite convictions and puts the sign of circumcision on her son. Moses, to this point, has been passive and is not given to that. She saves him. She saves him. So that the firstborn son is now circumcised and God relents. In other words, God is going to do whatever has to be done in order that Moses is absolutely prepared to stand in front of the people and lead Israel as a true Israelite. His family is going to match exactly what he's going to ask the other families of Israel to do. That's the Lord making perfect preparation for his people to serve him. Not leaving anything undone so that you serve with integrity and uprightness and holiness. Let me give you another provision. Verse 27, God provides the right companionship for our service. And here's where Aaron does come. The Lord said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. He is pleased to see him. He's thrilled to see him. There's a reunion, there's a companionship, there's a brotherhood in light of what we talked about last week in terms of Christian friendship. These guys are going to serve together, arm in arm, in joy. One last provision. God provides the right results of our service. Verse 28 says, Moses told all the words of the Lord told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and they assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses and he then performed the signs in the sight of the people. And what were the results? The people believed. And they were thrilled that God was concerned. He had seen their affliction. He was about to fulfill his promise. And they didn't just shout for joy, they bowed low in reverence and worshipped God. That must have been a profound moment for Moses. After all the objections, all the answers to the objections, he did exactly what God said and look what God did with the results. Now it's not always going to work out that way, is it? Because this same group of people later on is going to hear the same man utter the same words and they're, they're going to want to kill him. They're not going to want to believe him. Does that mean that Moses wasn't effective or God was insufficient? No. The circumstances do not determine God's sufficiency. Our role, be faithful to what God says. God's role, everything else. You be faithful you focus on that, God will take care of everything. I mean, think about this. Do you remember the marching orders that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples at the end of his ministry? Right after he was raised from the dead, he goes to Galilee, disciples meet him up there, Matthew 28, and he says, go make disciples. Just before he goes to heaven and ascends to heaven, many days later, just before he goes, he gives another statement. Wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes and then you will go in my power and you'll preach, right? Do you remember what Jesus said to those disciples when he said all the nations of the earth you're to make disciples of? That sounds impossible, doesn't it? But all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. 
And they saw it. They saw Jesus exercise power over the spiritual world, the physical world, the natural world. They saw all of that. They saw all power. They were talking to a man raised from the dead. All authority is given to me. You go make disciples. Go. And you teach them what I've told you. And then what did Jesus promise before he ascended to heaven? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses all over the earth. It's as if God has said the same thing to us, isn't it? I have all the authority, all the power. I am with you always. You go, represent me, be faithful, make disciples. But what about, Lord? What about what I don't have, what I wish I had? No, be faithful. And if you need a good example... Who's the best example in the Bible? It's not Moses. Moses is not a good example here. I know he ends up in the right place, but he's not a good example. We need a perfect example. And when Jesus, from his birth to his going, always did what the Father asked him to do, even unto death in the resurrection and the ascension, why did he do that? He is the son of man to show us the perfect example of what it means to trust God. We live our life in him and through him and for him and because of him. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we we thank you for this reminder of your great sufficiency in your power, your very presence that is with us, and in all the ways that you provide for us, you've called us to serve you. And Lord, you know the potential objections that exist in many of the hearts in this room. And there could even be people here who really don't even believe and they don't follow you. I pray that you would arrest their objections with your sufficiency and show them how sufficient you are. And even to know you, we can't do that on our own. And so you, God, you took on flesh, perfectly met your own divine standard and gave yourself as a substitute for us so that we could know you. You have done everything. And Lord, in this time when we come and we remember what you have given up in your life and your atoning work on the cross and we align ourselves around you and we identify ourselves with you publicly and pointedly, we do this with great faith that as you've asked to serve you, you, we will be faithful to that end. As you will live out your life in us, you will assist us, you will be the very grace that we need to, to act on faithfulness. And we, we look to you and we trust you. As we take of the Lord's table this morning and we remind ourselves who we are and we remind ourselves what you have done, we pray we do so humbly, but also with confident faith in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.